of the Redfish Blues Band here and I'm listening to Galtier and the Gators Blues and News Show. He probably isn't, you know. He's usually lounging about in a bath at this time of day, so I'm told. However, a welcome to the Blues and News Show. Uh, today we're talking about the two tailors of Alligator Records. Not related. <coughs> and you need to excuse me because my cat is losing her winter fur and it's the only time I'm actually allergic to her. So I apologise. She also enjoys, um, you know, headbutting the microphone and wafting her fur around my face when I'm doing the radio. So it's great fun. Anyway, we're going to start off with Hound Dog Taylor. I do believe he was the first ever to be signed to Alligator Records. Now, I'm not going to go too much into that because I do have a show uh, in the future all about Alligator Records. Um, so we're just going to stick to them, the people today. So we've got Hound Dog Taylor and Coco Taylor, as I said, not related. Uh, so we're going to start off with Hound Dog Taylor. Um, so, <clears throat> sorry, what magicians really practice is a subterfuge. Um, right, he was cheap guitars, cheap booze, amps, um, and he was like the court jester of Chicago slide guitar blues. He was cool. Um, and you know he was a master his quote when I die they'll say he couldn't play <coughs> beep but he sure made it sound good is emblazoned on um, a t-shirt over a photo of his six fingered fretting and sliding hand and his stage persona 
uh, laughing and joking at warp speed and uh, at bullhorn volume. Drunk, Paul Mall dangling from his lips. Huge slide raking his uh, his strings in a way that made his amp, you know, kind of almost detonate like a bomb. Um, and you know, he was he was a bit of a kind of barroom jester, but he was quite you know magical. Um, he was talented, and. <clears throat> And he was genuine. Um, despite his kind of almost wild playing, the effect it had on audiences um, and the story that it still tells is magical. So anybody who heard Hound Dog um, live and says they didn't have a good time is lying, says John Sinclair, the American um, counterculture hero who helped present Taylor while serving on the board of the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival in the early 70s. I have, I don't know which one it is I've seen, but I have watched um, a documentary all about the Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival and uh, who was on it? Oh, there was loads of folk on it. It was brilliant. There was a guy on it that um, they reckoned was about 107 at the time and it was lovely because uh, during the very hot times they had people sitting holding umbrellas over the top of the musicians so that, you know, they didn't burn and they weren't in the sun. Um, but it was it was amazing to watch it. All these folk just I mean everybody was smoking and um and most folk were barefoot. But they were all having a blast. It was great fun. Um so he'd start by um yelling at the beginning of his sets, you know, let's all have some fun and everybody did. So he was one of those artists that even if you thought you didn't like that kind of music, that you would get right into it because he was so um he was so into it, you know. So <clears throat> he was a perpetually struggling musician from Mississippi. He could barely read a word, but he um, read his audiences like Shakespeare, using songs like Wild About You Baby and Give Me Back My Wig. And his trio, the House Rockers Almighty's Groove, um, you know, they were known for lifting people's spirits. And he also knew how to find the soft spots um, and aching souls with his tears, you know, he's kind of teary ones, Sadie, and uh, she's gone. I don't know what did I pick today. If I've got time, I'm going to stick she's gone on as well. Um, so I've got <coughs> a vast amount of music for you today, none of which um, is actually, apart from four, <laughs> to do with this show, just picked songs that I liked, if I'm going to be honest. Um, but from Hound Dog Taylor, we've got Ain't Nobody and Take Five. And from Coco Taylor, we've got Never Trust a Man and Voodoo Woman. Let's assume that all the music is going to play and behave itself this week. Um, but yeah, we've got some Donna Harula on here, um, all the way to Kelly Jo Phelps and Johnny Winter. So there's a, a nice mix of music for you. Um, and I think you're going to enjoy the topic. I hope you are. So, as a black man raised in the depths of the Jim Crow Delta and then living and performing mostly um, in the urban space of Chicago's South Side, Hound Dog Taylor knew the score and used his music to settle it. So, although Hound Dog's been gone for 40 some years, I think, um, he, you know, has defiant joy still rings in the sound of the three singles and two studio albums he cut in his lifetime and especially in live recordings where he and his team, uh, because they were more than just a band, um, so he had co-guitarist Brewer Phillips, drummer Ted Harvey and um, they were, you know, 
carefree and outrageous and didn't really give a damn about anything. But to be fair, um, you know, coming from such a background and then being, you know, using your music for yourself and using your music then, you know, as as, as your life, um, I think you're entitled to, you know. Um, so they, um, their self-possessed music is the sound of freedom and that's what it's all about. And in the context of African-American history, even rebellion, uh, those who can't hear that through these kind of raggedy tones and occasional hiccups and, uh, and the odd mistake are merely listening with their ears. So um, when you hear him play, um, take a moment to imagine everything that they overcame and where the music's coming from because that is important and um you know i think that when you when you think about thought people think about blues music just as music but when you really stop and think about where it came from what it means um especially the, the kind of older original stuff the stuff we've got nowadays is brilliant and i'm not taking anything away from that um you know i love Criston, um, Kingfish and all these up, you know, kind of up and coming folk, they are fantastic they're churning out some amazing music um, but you know a lot of them take their inspiration from this original music and because it means something to them, you can hear it in their the kind of modern music um, because they're still feeling what the original people were feeling, you know um, so he was born Theodore Roosevelt Taylor. Um, not quite sure what year, nineteen fifteen to nineteen seventeen, somewhere in there, in Natchez, which is about eighty-five miles north of Baton Rouge, on the banks of the Mississippi. Um, so the small city's boomtown days were past. Its status as the Lower River's nexus of steamboat traffic was erased by the expansion of railroads, but it continued to be a lively music town. In 1940, Natchez was the site of the infamous Rhythm Club fire where 209 people lost their lives after being trapped inside the wooden steel building uh, where Walter Barnes, a well-regarded contemporary um, of Duke Ellington, was leading his Royal Creolians Orchestra. Uh, But by then, Taylor, whose first instrument was actually the piano, um, was playing guitar and singing all over the Delta. Um, he was also a tractor driver on a farm where he worked. Um, he'd appeared on Sonny Boy Williamson's popular King Biscuit Time radio show, uh, live radio show on the station KFFA in Helena, Arkansas. Arkansas. I don't. I can never tell how you're supposed to say that. Um, I never have a conversation with somebody uh, from America about how uh, you know, not even about, but and mention different places in America because we all see it so different. It, you feel ridiculous. <laughs> Especially New Orleans, because I think we see it the way, you know, we kind of see it phonetically. Um, I've yet to meet somebody, an um, American, who says it the way we do, but hey-ho, <laughs> there's time yet. Um, but yeah, so a few years later, uh, Taylor hastily relocated to Chicago after the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross in front of his home in retaliation for an affair he'd had with a white woman. Um, For the first day, he crawled through drainage ditches and hidden fields as he made his way north. I'd see what I mean. You just just can't imagine, can you? Well, I can't. 
I think we sit here in our cushy wee lives getting offended over small things and goodness knows what was going on, you know. But we've got not much to complain about. Um, right, so up next for you, we've got Donna Harula with Black Ice. You should definitely check her out. Uh, she's Chicago-based herself, actually. I must have subconsciously made this decision. Um, she's brilliant. And we had the pleasure of having, I would say, interviewing her, but it wasn't. We had this massive, big, long chat. She played us some music. Um, and, you know, apart from the fact that we had such a a different time distance we had to stop chatting but we think I could have spoke to her for ages I intend to meet her someday and uh, I not even you know my geography is all over the place I've got no idea how far away um, Chicago to Mississippi is but I have a feeling it's not going to happen when we go over this year however you never know and um, but yeah do check it out Donna Harula um, she's been up for all sorts of awards and music's brilliant she's a really genuinely lovely person doing some amazing stuff with the blues and um, I chose Black Ice for today's I don't think I've actually listened to this one and so we're going to be hearing it together for the first time on this show anyway uh, so I hope you enjoy and then we've got the immensely talented Eric Bibb who has just been touring Australia with his wonderful wife and um, and she's been up singing they're just such a, an amazing couple and such an inspiration Honestly, the, um, she, you know, had cancer, and um, a long battle. She ha- she didn't she had to have um, a, a tongue transplant, I do believe. And look at her now, singing with her husband, going on tour. Um, honestly, such an inspiration. So we've got Emmett's Ghost, which I do feel actually. Um, what the song is based on would make a fantastic topic for a radio show also so enjoy and I'll be back after this
stronger than Emmett Till when he met his brutal fate. That photograph scared me so bad I started to cry. What a way for a boy like me to have to die. The ghost of Emmett Till is walking around. Town of money, Mississippi Can't move on Cause hate's still going strong All over this country That picture sold A bitter seed in my frightened mind From that day on I understood Some hate in my kind That photograph Revealed the fact I could not deny Like Emmett Till A boy like me Could surely die The ghost of Emmett Till Is walking around The town of money Mississippi Can't move on Though it's been so long Cause the killers walked free talent and such a fantastic song but such a sad sad story uh, the story of Emmett Till which is um, indeed very true so today we are um, having a look at to start with Hound Dog Taylor on the Blues and You show um, so Hound Dog Taylor was born with polydactylism which is a condition that causes the formation of additional fingers or toes so both of his hands had six fingers so the sixth finger wasn't very functional but his fifth finger was extra large and some people theorise that this um, added kind of bulk and strength may have helped him more aggressively pin the strings with his slide uh, because generally when somebody plays the slide it's it's a kind of softer slide it's, it's, it's a kind of song almost that they do with their um, 
you know, rather than plucking the strings. And um, and he was known for his wild playing, remember I told you at the beginning, so um, that could be the reason. And um, at one point, as Fable has it, I mean, how true it is, we don't know, he was so tired of being razzed for his difference and I mean bearing in mind he would be getting it anyway but the fact that he had this extra finger as well so he supposedly used an axe or a straight razor to cut off the extra finger on his right hand but the you know resulting pain etc led him to leave the left one alone and uh, as I said who knows how true that is I will go on a mission to find photographs of his hands and see what I can see but um but it was just like a little, or the 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 one that I have seen, um, one picture of one of his hands. It was just a small kind of little nub of a finger. It wasn't like an actual full-on pinky finger extra. Um, so for his first fifteen years in Chicago, he played gigs, but he made a living via day jobs, as normally people would do when they get started off. Um, so under the spell of Elmore James, I'm sure I played Elmore James last week whose early 50s single, um, singles established him as a star, uh, Hound Dog Taylor began playing more and more slide, crafting his own um, raw distillation of Elmore's keening, cutting, aggressive style and even uh, copying his bawling vocal approach. So in 1957, he was building cabinets for televisions and uh, he made the decision to chase this you know the muse full time. Two years later, he met guitarist Brewer Phillips on a gig, and the house rockers began to gestate. Um, it's funny how things happen, isn't it? Or I feel that way. And um, I think it, I find these stories so uplifting when you look back at the time um, this was going on and what they accomplished and how. Um, most people unknowingly to this day have no idea that this this music is where most of our music came from without all this happening we wouldn't be where we are musically and um, you know because from this came um, it, it evolved from you know your kind of original blues to R&B which is rhythm and blues um, and then went you know hip hop and rap and all of this came from here and um, and I just find it fascinating when you're, you find out about people um, so I knew about Hound Dog Taylor heard a few of his songs um, I've seen him in a, a thing a film um, about Alligator Records and um, to then kind of research his backstory and find out what he survived how he got where he was That's what, that fascinates me, I hope it does to everybody else that's tuned in but it definitely fascinates me, uh, I love seeing where somebody came from and, and how they changed their lives around because I feel that you know um, these stories can help us, you know when you're stuck in a rut and you think well do you know what, look what he did you know, he escaped the Ku Klux Klan, he crawled his way through drainage ditches um he was making cabinets for tv and then bang you know he thought nope i'm not having this so through the 60s he eked out a living in chicago's black working class bars which stayed open long and late and at some point he got the nickname hound dog which is probably cooler than teddy roosevelt um, but tales vary, so it was either because of his tireless pursuit of members of the opposite sex or because he actually did look like a bit of a dog. 
Um, he had prominent ears, a large nose and rounded eyes. Probably a wee bit of all of that, really. And he developed a pre-show ritual of downing a shot of whiskey, um, a mixed drink and a beer in quick sequence just before taking the stage, which he then would command for a series of sets, sometimes stretching to six hours or more. And the typical fee was $30 for a band, um, and it was bumped up to 45 on weekends for a lot of work. Mind you... If you were doing that as well as your day job, um, you know, and and you got to get up there and just rock out for six hours doing what you wanted and people were tuning in, watching you dance and singing along, you know, um, I can't imagine that you would put a price on that, really. I think it'd be quite cool. Maybe I should try his mad concoction before uh, we take to the stage and perhaps it'll, you know... I think I'd probably fall over, let's be honest. <laughs> I don't think it would do me any favours. However, you never know. Um, so, in 1965, he and Phillips added a drummer, Ted Harvey, and this coalesced their sound, really. So, with Harvey as their tireless spark plug, they developed a loose but brilliant language by meshing their guitars. So, mostly Hound Dog took the lead with his slide and his howling voice, and uh, while Phillips would um, lay down a stone finger buster riff as a bass line, often when you hear an instrumental by the house rockers um, like Phillips' screwdriver, that's Brewer at the fore aggressively playing patterns um, kind of mean and dirty single notes in a style that um, came from his early lessons with um, the great six-string innovator Memphis Mini. Wow. So, in truth, Phillips was a better player than Taylor, but he just had the, you know, charisma and the the everything to be at the front. Um, so, with his crew at his side, he laid it down like Godzilla. He was up there, you know. So, um, so we're going to carry on with this. But what have I got for you next? Gary Clark Jr., um, the healing, and we've got some Hubert Sumlin uh, blues is here to stay. And at um, this is we'll have our back to back tracks. So, three singles actually between 1960 and 67, including a release on um, Chess Sub. sub- subsidiary, or that, I knew I was going to make a mess of that, Checker, did nothing to enhance their fortunes. In 1967, he somehow obtained a slot on the American Folk Blues Festival Tour of Europe, but he hated the experience because his style didn't mesh with his, uh, the other travellers, which included uh, Little Walter, Coco Taylor, Sunhouse, uh, Brownie McGee, um, but in, in 1970, the coin flipped, so Recent college, I can't, do you know what, I cannot say this man's name for love nor money, and I apologise, but Bruce, who was a music-loving college graduate, he moved to Chicago for a job um, at the famed Jazz Record Mart and Delmark Records operation, and he wanted to chase his city's thriving blues, so Taylor had told him about a regular Sunday gig he held down at Florence's Lounge. Um, on Chicago's south side and it was a classic working man's bar you know a standalone building made of brick and cinder blocks with a cubed glass window and dark wood panelled interior you know just what you would just what you would picture or it's certainly the way I would picture it anyway Um, kind of juke joint style and or kind of less wood more brick but 
anyone who has pursued regional music styles to their depths know this is the kind of lair where the wizards can sometimes be found. And on one afternoon in 1970, um, Bruce went along and found Taylor Phillips and Harvey. So he then goes on to recount that that afternoon, right down to the beads of sweat trickling down Taylor's cigarette smoke clouded face, um, and you can actually watch Bitten by the Blues, the Alligator Record story, which is what I do believe I watched. Um, Yes, I'm pretty sure. Which he co-authored with Patrick Roberts. So talking about that gig 51 years later or so, I think it was like 2018, um, revelation still rings in his voice so it was the most fun thing that he'd ever seen anyone um, doing, you know, musically and he remembers grinning all afternoon so they were so happy that um, it was like watching kids pretend to make music with brooms instead of guitars, you know, kind of kidding on you were a rock star and um, Ted Harvey worked at a loading dock for Montgomery Ward and Brewer Phillips worked construction so Hound Dog was the only one who made a halfway living playing music. Uh, their only motivation for being there, as I said, was to, to have fun and to share their music with other people. And um, so besides colourful stories about travels with the group and how Ted Harvey really drove because he'd end up um, on the wrong side of the road or something, um, Taylor sat up all night in his hotel room with the lights on because he was frightened of having a repeated dream about being chased by wolves. Um, you know, all this kind of thing. He had an epic slide guitar battle with uh, J.B. Hutto and, um, you know, they found a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Australia <laughs> thinking they were going to starve to death. Um, so that day was transformative for both Bruce and Hound Dog Taylor. So after failing to get his boss to sign Taylor to Delmark because he just did not, he didn't feel that it was a good fit for Delmark, um, Bruce went on and used a $2,500 inheritance to pay for two days of studio time and that's where Alligator Records started. Um, so Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers in 1971 um came out of Alligator Records. Natural Boogie followed in 1973 and today Alligator is the world's largest independent blues label. I think at that point Delmark was more concerned with um, more jazz sound and music, um, preferably, you know, even going into blues, but as long as it wasn't, you know, more kind of jazz side of things. And um, and so, yes, yeah, so today Alligator is still the world's largest independent blues label. Um, it's celebrated a 50th anniversary. And what cool history, you know, these stories have. Um, it includes titles by Albert Collins, who's going to be another future topic of the show. Johnny Winter, who I have on here. Lonnie Brooks, Lonnie Mack, Coco Taylor, Buddy Guy, Junior Wells and many other legends. So for the next four years... Alligator Records Shepherd Taylor Phillips and uh, Harvey in the studio and across the world stages and he describes the trio's chemistry as equal parts brotherly love, vicious adolescent rivalry and Canadian club. Quite cool. Right, let's have some Gary Clark Jr. The Healing and some Hubert Sumlin back after this. Bad. 
I'm on the battlefield. I keep bringing soul to Jesus by the service, the service, the service that I bring. The service is the heart. Yeah, 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 yeah.
This is Donna Harula, and you're listening to Galti and Gators Blues and New Show in Scotland. Yes, you are. And today we are having a wee sort of wander down uh, memory lane with Hound Dog Taylor. Um, so, like the animal whose name he had, he loved being with people. And fans around the world knew him as funny, warm, smiling, um, you know, just a lovely kind of warm-hearted host so even when he was at home he was on uh, just like when he was on stage he was the life of the party and bruce right let me have a go at this a glare because I, I hope i've said your name properly 
honestly. <laughs> I dread saying things. I should always try and find some sort of pronunciation before I start these things. But anyway, Bruce Igler, who started Alligator Records, um, says whenever he would, um, you know, kind of visit hound dog taylor's apartment it was buzzing with visiting friends and relatives but in his quiet times um taylor often appeared sad and regretful so he seemed to feel that he'd missed out on a lot of things um in life and he persecuted himself for what he saw as a lack of musical and practical education not really believing um in himself and appreciating the depth of his own soulfulness or the joy that his music created um you know so thinking that he needed you know to to have been more academic with it um i suppose everybody has you know small regrets and um and perhaps that's part of some people's charm that they don't recognize how amazing they are um you know because it keeps people humble then so one of um taylor and phillips joys was argument so they once bickered all the way from Boston back to Chicago, which is some was like nearly a thousand mile round trip. <laughs> and it was all about whether Hub City Radio Station WRKO was AM or FM. Um I I mean, I can imagine bickering for that length of time or something. <laughs> But not about one specific topic. Um, so one morning after an all-night drive, Hound Dog woke up in the back seat of a car and noticed Ted Harvey was asleep in the front. He smacked Ted on the back of the head and yelled, wake up and argue. <laughs> it was not always good or funny, sorry. And in his book, Bruce Igler recounts finding Taylor and Phillips in a violent argument behind a club. They had, uh, you know, knives drawn out and um, they were going for blood um, so he's saying I don't really know what would have happened because their tone made me feel like they really wanted to kill each other acting fast he reminded both men that they had a show um, contracted to fulfil and the battle stopped um, so he thinks they were probably looking for an excuse to put the, the knives away in May 1975, they went too far. During a visit to Taylor's home, Phillips made a tasteless joke about um, Taylor's wife. So Taylor shot him in the arm and the thigh with a rifle. Dear me. And that was the end of the house rockers. A few months later, Hound Dog Taylor was in the hospital with inoperable cancer in his lungs and neck. And this was his last stop before his great gig in the sky. Uh, Bruce was a frequent visitor and on his final stop by two days before Hound Dog slipped away, um, he was leaving as Phillips arrived to make amends with his friends, his friend rather, and uh, Hound Dog Taylor died on December 17th, 1975. Um, You know, it's some life... I don't know if there's a film, but I know there's a book. Let me see if I can find that for you quickly. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a book about his life. Um, da, 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 da. I want to say... Oh, I think Goodnight Boogie, A Tale of Guns, Wolves and the Blues of Hound Dog Taylor. It's a fairly new thing. Um, I think I'll be adding that to my to read list once I finish this year's uni which has had something like 15 books that we've been forced to read um, but 
Uh, yes, so sounds like quite a good wee read. So he had some life and, you know, despite his misgivings over he, him thinking that, um, you know, he didn't have the best of educations and he should have done this and he should have done that, um, he really, you know, kind of brought joy to so many people and um, completely, you know, turned his life around, did something totally mental, chased his dream just like many of us talk about, think about, dream about and never actually go through with but he did and uh, and that's pretty cool so we've got Hound Dog Taylor Ain't Got Nobody and Take Five and if you took five of his fingers he would still have had seven <laughs> so it would have been fine um, however uh, then we'll go straight into Coco Taylor, Never Trust a Man and one of my personal favourites, Voodoo Woman and the second half of this show will be all about the fabulous woman herself so don't be going anywhere because there's more to come I'm a 
Cable Company. Professional bespoke low resistance and low capacitance cables for musicians. Handmade in Scotland using the finest cable, weave and connector products. Handcrafted, studio quality, road ready cables. The Music Cable Company.com. Lied to, miss you, and then pushed aside. I can't 
count the nights I wish for mama and cry Mama told me Girl, you just can't trust a man was a schoolboy, my first love in the world. I thought I would die. I called him kissing another girl. Mama told me, girl, don't never trust a man. But I was wild at the time. People and I just didn't understand.
back-to-back tracks for you there. Uh, just in case you've just joined us, that was the fantastic Coco Taylor. And before that, we had Hound Dog Taylor. Uh, Hound Dog Taylor was the subject of the first half of the show. And the fabulous Coco Taylor is, uh, is the up for topic now. Um, so she was dubbed uh, quite accurately so, I think you'll agree. Uh, the Queen of Chicago Blues. And um, Coco Taylor helped keep the tradition of big-voiced, brassy female blues belters alive, um, recasting the spirits of early legends like um, some of which we had on last week, Bessie Smith, Marini, Big Mama Thornton and Memphis Minnie. Um, So that she kind of, you know, introduced that kind of style for the modern age. Um, Rough, raw vocals, you know, just perfect for this new electric era of blues um, that started in Chicago and her massive hit Wang Dang Doodle which I have to say I don't think I've ever played it <laughs> it's a fantastic song honestly um, this served notice that male dominance in the blues was not exclusive and she had a productive initial stint on chess records and then spent several decades on the prominent contemporary blues label Alligator with Bruce Igler I hope I'm saying your name right pal um, going on to win more WC Handy Awards than any other female performer in history and establishing herself as far and away the greatest female blues singer of all time. Um, fantastic voice. I don't know um, if I'm getting this accurate, accurate, um, but she was woken up in the middle of the night and, um, you know, asked to go and record Wang Dang Doodle. Now, Maybe maybe I'll talk less and squeeze that in and uh, she's gone on the show or maybe I'll just take a couple out. Who knows? Uh, but when you hear it, I think, how can you wake up in the middle of the night and then manage to sing that? Because it's just, it's like nonsense that makes such a cool song. Uh, but anyway, she was born Cora Walton, uh, September 28th, 1928 on a sharecropper's farm in Memphis, Tennessee. Her mother died in 1939 and her and her siblings grew up helping their father in the fields. She got the nickname Coco because she loved chocolate so much and um, she began singing gospel music in a local Baptist church and inspired by the music they heard on the radio, she and her siblings played on um, makeshift instruments. They played the blues on, you know, kind of 
mad instruments that they made themselves. In 1953, she married truck driver Robert Pops Taylor and moved with him to Chicago to look for work. Um, I talked a little bit about this last week, but, um, you know, he worked, I think they actually ended up in the south side and he worked in a slaughterhouse and she got a job as a housemaid cleaning. So um, they often played blues songs together at night and they would, you know, go down to the south side blues clubs whenever they could. And um, Pops encouraged Coco to sit in with some of the bands and her singing, which reflected not only the classic female, female blues shouters, but contemporaries or like Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, um, who were out there at that particular time and um, actually were the ones credited with electrifying the blues. Um, She quickly made a name for herself. In 1962, she met legendary Chess Records songwriter, producer and bassist Willie Dixon, who's the one that woke her up and said, hey, I've written a song, you need to come and do it now. (laughs) And uh, he was so impressed with her live performance that he took her under his wing. He produced her 1963 debut single Honky Tonky and for the small USA label and then secured her a recording contract with Chess Records. Um, she made her recording debut for Chess in 1964 and hit it big the following year with the Dixon penned Wang Dang Doodle, which sold over a million copies and hit number four on the R&B charts. It became her signature song Forever After and it was also the last Chess single uh, to hit the R&B top ten. Demand for her, um, you know, so I was just checking the time to make sure I wasn't you know what I'm like kind of um, it skyrocketed right the demand went through the roof and even though none of her follow ups sold as well um, as the, the blues audience began to shift from black to white the relatively new Taylor became one of the first Chicago blues artists to command a following on the city's white dominated north side what's Nathan waiting um, so the the kind of culture of it all changed, and that was there was a an interview with Muddy Waters, and he was doing I don't know I think it was like a wee festival, and folk were like you know nobody's going to come I don't know why you bother anymore. Black people wanted to disassociate with that whole side of things. They didn't want to remember about slavery and where the music came from. Um, and when he got up to do his bit, he looked out and the crowd was mainly middle class white people and um and although you know uh, it's a shame that certain things happened it needed to happen in order for that music to stay alive and you know still be um music that we know about that we are, that is still being made you know and um i think it's it's important that we all remember where it came from and uh nowadays I have to be honest especially in the UK kind of side of things um, we have got a lot of people who really have shouldn't have a say um, telling us what is and what isn't acceptable blues music um, in this day and age when really uh, you know <laughs> I don't think that really they should have as big a say in it um, as they do I will not be naming names but I'm sure you can all use your imaginations um, so Next up for you, we have got Johnny Winter. And, uh, oh, wow, 
I think yeah, just I, I, do you know it's got nothing to do with the documentary because he's a fascinating man. But I keep trying to watch a documentary about him, and I never get past a certain tips because I always put it on too late, and I always fall asleep. So I've got no idea what happens at the end of it. So uh, what I should do if I was clever is start it from the bit that I fall asleep at, and then watch the rest of it. Um, but yeah, completely fascinating, and I hope you enjoy this. <laughs>
Sometimes I wonder why Can your love be so Hi friends, this is Eric Bibb, and we're listening to Galty and the Gators Blues Show in Scotland. Oh, so cool, so cool. Um, right, we are talking Coco Taylor. I got a snuck in a bit of Wang Dang Doodle for you, and uh, so you got to hear it eventually. And um, we're now having a wee look at what happens after her and her husband um, managed to quit their day jobs. He became her manager, and she put together a backing band called The Blues Machine uh, with the release of two. Please go away. Sorry, uh, with the release of two albums, 1969's Coco Taylor, which featured a number of her previous singles, and 1972's Basic Soul. Taylor's live gigs kept branching out further and further from Chicago, and when she played the 1972 Ann Arbor Blues and Jazz Festival, the resulting live album on Atlantic helped bring her to a national audience. Again, mind, she was a housemaid and he was working in a, a slaughterhouse. Um, they left for Chicago with 35 cents and a box of Ritz crackers to their name. That was it. And look at what they accomplished. By the early 70s, Chess Records was floundering financially and eventually went under in 1975. And that was when uh, Coco Taylor signed with a then young Chicago-based label called Alligator, which has grown into one of America's most prominent blues labels over the years. Um, Taylor debuted for Alligator in 1975 with I Got What It Takes um, an acclaimed effort that garnered her first Grammy nomination her 1978 follow up The Earthshaker featured several tunes that became staples of her live show including I'm a Woman uh, which we heard from Demetria Taylor last week and Hey Bartender and her popularity on the blues circuit just kept growing in spite of the music's commercial decline um, in 1980 she won the first of an incredible string of WC Handy Awards for Best Contemporary Female Artist and over the next two decades she would capture at least one more almost every year save for 1989, 97 and 98 1981 brought From the Heart of a Woman and in 1984 she won her first Grammy thanks to her appearance on Atlantic's various artists compilation Blues Explosion which was named Best Traditional Blues Album. She followed that success with the guest laden Queen of the Blues in 1985 which won her a couple of extra handy awards for Vocalist of the Year and Entertainer of the Year uh, no female qualifier attached. In 1987, she released her first domestic live album, An Audience with the Queen. Um, I've seen her in a, a number of different um, 
documentaries. I, do, I mean, I know I say that all the time, but I just find them, I find the whole thing so fascinating. And I watch tons of them, not just about the blues, um, loads of different documentaries. And uh, I think really I got right into that when I first started doing radio shows um, because it's one of the quickest ways to learn about something if you're trying to put together enough research to cover a topic on the radio uh, is to watch somebody else's compiling it and then go from that you've got things to to then research from the the documentary uh, so it started that way and it's just t- tends to be between that and reading is what I do in my spare time and reading has not been easy this year as I said with with uh, uni but you know tragedy struck for a Coco Taylor in 1988. She broke her shoulder, collarbone and several ribs in a van accident while on tour and her husband went into cardiac arrest. So although Pop survived uh, for a time, his health was never the same and he passed away some months later. After recuperating, Taylor made a comeback at the annual Chicago Blues Festival and in 1990 she issued Jump for Joy as well as making a cameo appearance in the typically bizarre David Lynch film Wild at Heart. Um, She followed this in 1993 with the aptly titled Force of Nature um, after which she took a seven-year hiatus from recording. During that time, she remarried and continued to tour extensively, maintaining the stature she'd achieved with her 80s work as the living queen of the blues. In 2000, she finally returned with a new album, Royal Blue, which featured a plethora of guest stars, including B.B. King, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Johnny Johnson and Keb Moe. Health issues forced another seven-year hiatus before she returned with the album Old School in 2007. Uh, Coco Taylor died in Chicago uh, June uh, 2009 after experiencing complications from from surgery for gastrointestinal bleeding. She was 80 years old. I mean, what a massive, amazing career. Um, You know, to, to span that length of time um, and to be doing so much amazing stuff and you've heard her here but I do urge you to check out some of her other stuff and if you do come across documentaries um, about you know kind of um, the ones that, that I find more fascinating is the journeys from the fields you know to to the current day so you you get some belters um one of these days i will make a big compilation list for you all but um yeah you get some cracking documentaries that you can you can follow the music and it just blows me away just everything that was accomplished um i have got some kelly joe phelps what have we got for you down to the praying ground and um and also We'll, we'll squeeze in there, I think, um, Hound Dog Taylor with She's Gone at some point. So I'm going to pop this one before I run out of too much time to get the music on.
So many years dead on a hollow road, dirty old blood running through my veins, making all kind of weird decisions. Cut all the light from the sky, seeing changes. My knees are falling down to the pavement, holding my grab hold of my soul.
She's gone. I played Kelly Joe Phelps down to the playing praying praying ground rather, and we had little Walter, a mean old world, um, and a wee bit of Robert Johnson Crossroad Blues. So I think when you listen to um, Kelly Joe Phelps, specifically that song um, that I played for you, you you can see what I mean by the slide being more of a a song. Um, it's delicate and um and vocal and then when you listen to Hound Dog Taylor he just makes it sound different completely and um and that is what kind of set him apart especially when you consider all the songs that I played for you um from Hound Dog Taylor all his successes and he could barely read or write he had no idea about writing music or reading music and <laughs> Look at what he done, you know. I mean, it just shows you there's nothing in this world that can hold us back except us. That's really it. Um, and this last part of the show, we've been looking at Coco Taylor and what an amazing life she had too. Um, started off rough and um, and ended up awesome. Uh, oh, actually, just in case any musicians out there are wondering... Um, Hound Dog Taylor actually tuned his guitar to open E and open D, but he would tune by ear, which quite a lot of musicians do now and definitely did um, at that point because obviously they're in the middle of a, a gig. And, um, and you know, it was important to learn how to tune by ear, especially as the whiskey was flowing. Um, at one point, actually, Hound Dog Taylor tried to quit drinking, but he shook so hard so badly that um, he couldn't play so he just started drinking again um, now quickly back to Coco Taylor because we're running out of time um, 
she actually visited Europe as part of the American Folk Blues Festival and that was the beginning of her international appeal. Um, that was in 1967. So when you think of coming from a sharecropper, you know, sort of background, gospel singing, playing your instruments with your siblings that you've made yourself, moving to Chicago with 35 cents and a box of crackers and nothing much else, and going from being a housemaid to visiting Europe as part of an American Folks Blues Festival, it's some going. Um, unfortunately, in 1969, as I said, when Chess Records was faltering, they had to terminate her contract and she was forced to return to domestic service. But 1975 is when she signed with Alligator Records and she would release nine albums between 1978 and 2007, eight of which were Grammy nominated. Um, you know, a phenomenal career. She appeared in films... Um, such as Wild at Heart and the Blues Brothers, which I actually credit this CD, um, Blues Brothers Soul Sister, for when I first became interested in the blues. But I remember sitting on my dad's knee as a wee top watching the Blues Brothers. And and it would have been there, you know, kind of for me, that I, we've got it on DVD. I think my kids have all seen it. Uh, things changed when I was a child. It was on normal television, PG, Saturday um, early evening I sat and watched it with my dad and trust me my parents would not let me watch anything that I wasn't supposed to um, and Smokey and the Bandit and that kind of whole um, movies that were out then that were all PG that are now 12 and 15 And um, but having watched it you know I let my kids watch it and um, yeah so she was she did that she was in countless television appearances documentaries about music um she also received more blues music awards than any other artist male or female um in 1993 she received the legend of the year award and march 3rd was declared coco taylor day by chicago mayor uh, richard m daly in 1997 she was included in the Blues Foundation Hall of Fame and in 1999 was awarded the Blues Foundation Lifetime Achievement Award. Through her career she performed with musical legends such as Muddy Waters Muddy Waters, I'm reading two things at the same time, sorry, and B.B. King she had a fantastic career, um, she is a fantastic role model for women in music women in general and and certainly um you know african and american history have to look up to her and think wow you know look what she accomplished i am so glad that i stumbled across her i'm so glad i listened to her music um i could never imagine having that amazing growly voice that she's got um you don't you, you don't need to see her to know exactly who you're listening to and um and you know Imagine receiving more blues music awards than any other artist, male or female. I think it's, it's things like this, things like this that um, you know we have to we have to hold on to, um, you know, and let's not let go in a, a kind of gender feud that everybody's having going on at the moment. Let's um, live and let live, but honestly, let's celebrate the fact that this woman did something amazing in a time. Um, where it was difficult for women to do much and um, and you know let's congratulate her for that and let's remember it um, you know she was widowed in 1996 after a long happy life with her husband who was also her manager for a time um, 1989 rather sorry she remarried in 1996 um, she married Hayes Harris 
and um, and sadly died. She died 2009 in Chicago, leaving behind a daughter, two grandchildren and three great-grandchildren who will all live on to know what an amazing woman she was and what a legacy to leave behind. We are going to end today's show with Rye Cooder Crossroads, uh, mainly just because I've been talking about him recently. And I thought, I don't recall him getting a wee shot on the radio. So, or certainly he's had plenty of shots on the radio, but this particular one. Um, so uh, that's what you're you're playing out with today. I hope you've enjoyed today's topic. It's very different doing this show without the gator. Um, just at the moment, he's got um, music coming out. He's got um, music videos. He's, you know, filming and life is quite busy for him as well as taking himself back to school and doing uh, graphic design at college. So, you know, it's very difficult to get enough time together to, to get a radio show sorted. But I'm enjoying it and, um, and you know, I hope you are too. And uh, so tune in, I think, actually, next week I'm going to cover um, Emmett Till on this. I know it's not a musical thing, but I think it is an important story. And um, and I'm pretty sure I can work a playlist around the subject. So bring your tissues because it's going to pull at your heartstrings. Um, it's a, an awful story, but as I said, it's important. And um, and for now, here's Rai Kudar Crossroads. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>
This is Wiley Bo Walker, and you're listening to Galtier and the Gators Blues and New Show. Turn on the radio and drive, drive, drive. 